turned 70 on Friday. It would have been his 70th birthday. Uh, but my father has been dead now for 11 years. I was a senior at LSU when his heart ruptured in his chest one day. Uh, he was actually at Northwestern State University. My uh, stepmother was going back and doing some classes, and, and my father actually died there on the campus of Northwestern where he graduated. But uh, he, uh, uh, the, I thought about how 11, 11 years is just going by so quick. But you never forget. You never forget birthdays. You never forget special days. And I began to think, too, of 13 years ago when I was able to lead my father to Christ and how, how I'm grateful for 13 years uh, because it makes 11 years a little bit sweeter. And the hope that as we read in Thessalonians that when Christ returns, should I not be with him yet, but should we be here when Christ returns and he brings the dead in Christ with him, that my father would be among that number. But as I, I thought about that, the, uh, the reality is, for all practical purposes, my family was probably a dysfunctional family growing up. We would have been labeled a dysfunctional uh, family. I would say the largest dysfunction was my dad, but uh, it's funny how the whole family gets labeled because of one part, right? Just think about that because you're one member of Crosspoint. We all get labeled because of your craziness, right? So we're going to see about that. So I, I looked up a definition for dysfunctional family, and the most reliable source was Wikipedia. And uh, here's what Wikipedia says. Uh, dysfunctional family is a family in which conflict, misbehavior, and often abuse on the part of individual members occur continually and regularly, leading other members to accommodate such actions. Uh, and it goes on further, but I, I would say that certainly Dad fit into that. There were continued and regular problems, but I thought I would share some of the experiences. You know, one of my earliest memories, I, I was born in Port Arthur, Texas, and one of my earliest memories is standing in the living room of our house and, and being in the corner where Mom had the desk, and, and mom, mom has the wooden chair that was normally at that desk. She's like a lion tamer. Uh, and she's pulled Laryllin behind her, and my dad has this knife that he's, he's kind of jabbing. I remember being in the, in the corner of the living room there screaming, no, daddy, no. It was, I don't know why we would be labeled dysfunctional. That sounds like most homes, right? Uh, another story was leaving one of my fourth grade baseball games from one of the large metropolises in Louisiana called Hicks. And uh, if you, you want to know what the country is around Leesville, there's Hicks, all right? And so... We played a baseball game there in fourth grade, and, and my dad and sister got in an argument, and my dad forced my sister out of the car and then kind of left her on the side of the road. And then he went on down the ways and, and pulled off and kind of waited. But all my fourth grade friends were passing us, you know, as this scene was, was playing out. I could tell you about Disney World, and one day early on, Dad calls this huge scene, and he just yelled in front of everybody, and then he stormed off. And we didn't see him again till that night. He happened to be walking by one of the stores where we were on the way out. And I saw him, and I was kind of glad because, you know, he's still your dad. You want to know he's alive. But uh, I would say that the day that he left us was probably our best day at Disney World. We had a good day. <laughs> and uh, uh, I could tell you times of Dad threatening to take all of his medicine and end his life or taking me on a trip. And he told me I would never see my mom and sister again. He picked me up in seventh grade one, one Friday at Leesville Junior High and was actually taking me to the Super Bowl in New Orleans when San Francisco played Denver. And it's incredible how you can have a great experience and just be ruined by who you're with. But the whole way down, he told me that I would never see my mom and sister again and that we were, uh, he was kidnapping me, but uh, he apparently didn't. Anyways, one story in particular that I wanted to share with you, as if you're not depressed enough at this point. Uh, 
my sister had come home from Louisiana College, and you know, there, there's a thing is I think about love one another with brotherly affection and what it means to be fa uh, familial. Uh, listen, I have had no better example in my life than my sister of someone that it means to love deeply your family. She had opportunities to go to many other colleges. She went to Louisiana College because it was close. So she could stay home and watch out for her little brother and her mom. And uh, one, one weekend, my sister brought a friend home. And uh, for whatever reason, dad was yelling. And uh, it, it was in front of this friend. And no shame of the words that he used of my sister. And, and I kind of walked back around uh, the trailer. And then I don't know exactly what happened, but when I came back around, my sister blasted my dad. And all I saw was my dad flying through the air. And uh, probably not the best response, but we laughed about it long after that. And, uh, you know, the thought occurred to me this week as I was thinking about all of these things was that friend, that friend that was there. And I'm certain that as my sister and that friend drove back to Louisiana College, I'm certain that on that trip back to Pineville, that friend never turned to Laurel and said, I wish I was part of your family. <laughs> I just thought about that, you know, this week, that I'm certain that... Then the friend was never like, man, I wish that was my dad, you know? And I remember growing up, and none of my friends ever said, I wish I was part of your family. I remember thinking that. You know, the, the truth is that most people who grow up in dysfunctional families, they want out. Other people don't want in. They, they want out. And, I, I mean, even for your own self, have you ever looked at a dysfunctional family and thought to yourself, I wish I could get in on that? No one does that. And the reason that I start here with this is not just a tear at your heartstrings for what we grew up in. The Lord's providence is, is in his reasons and how it shaped me. Uh, I have no doubts about the Lord's wisdom. He knows where he puts us. He knows what homes he puts us in. There aren't mistakes. There aren't accidents. And in my case, I had to cling to Christ because I had no other hope. As a seventh grader, when the court orders you to go with your dad every other weekend, every other Wednesday night, I had to cling to Christ. I would pray myself to sleep. I would weep in junior high, uh, and it would be God's word that would bring me comfort. Psalm 56.3, what time I'm afraid, I'll trust in thee. And uh, so growing up in these, these things, uh, no, no one looks at that and, and says they, they want to be a part of that. But the reason that I share that is they do the same thing with churches. No one looks at a dysfunctional church and says, wish I was part of their church. No one looks at a church that has problems and says, Let's move our membership there. No one looks at a church that is living in disobedience and says, I want to be a part of that. And we've been studying in, in Romans 12, and today in Romans 12.10, we're going to be hammered on how we should relate to one another. And the truth is, if we're dysfunctional in this area, it's not just dysfunction, friends, it's disobedience. And if we are honoring and God is producing these in our lives, these are the kinds of things that outside people are going to say, we want to be part of that. But if we are not living these verses, then most people are going to run from us. We won't be an attractive church. And the, and the biggest part is that we are not going to display the gospel. I don't believe Cross Point is a dysfunctional church. But I do believe we need to be challenged by Romans 12.10 and say, are we living these vital signs of a healthy church? Let's stand together and read one verse and ask the Lord to teach us. Romans 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. 
outdo one another in showing honor. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray now, if your spirit doesn't light it up to us, then we won't get it. And if your spirit doesn't enable us to live it, then it won't be produced here. So, Father, would you help Romans 12.10 to be reality at Crosspoint? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So just a very, very quick review. In the spring and summer, we walked through Galatians. And for those of you who this is your first Sunday with us, we were studying the gospel word, what is it? When we finished Galatians, we transitioned to Romans 12 and have been there since then, and we're studying the gospel community. Paul has an idea that the gospel word should make a difference in our lives. He says in Romans 12, 1, therefore. And once he pre- uh, presents his argument, Romans 1 through 11, for the gospel, he makes a transition to say, here's what it looks like when it's lived out. And where we've been the last few weeks in particular is verse 9. In verse 10, we've, we've even slowed to a crawl as we've, we've entered these. But the reason is because there are 13 imperatives in five verses. There are 13 commands in five verses that Paul lists in a staccato-type fashion, one right after the other. And you know what? It would be possible for us to do all of these in one sermon and move on with our lives. But we really shouldn't want that. We should want to say, what does the Lord say we should be about? And we should ponder and linger and say, produce this in us. And so we've, we've been calling this vital signs of a healthy church because Paul says, here's what should be true of us. If the gospel is in us, here's what it looks like when it's lived out. And we saw the very first vital sign was that love would be genuine. It means without masks, that we're, we're, we're not hypocritical in our love. When we say we love, we really mean it. It's not a pretense. There's true love that's here. As a part of that love, there's a second vital sign that we're hating evil. Not just that we're not doing evil, but we hate it. How's the Lord doing in producing that? For those of us who chose sin, four or five of us this week, for those of us who chose sin, are you, are you hating evil? Is this being produced in us? And the third vital sign was clinging to what's good. And the idea here is that we're glued to it, that we're cemented to what's good. We don't want to be pulled away from it in any way. And anything that would pull us away, we're going to treat as an enemy. We're going to be hostile toward it. These are vital signs of a healthy church. Paul says this should not only be in the church, friend, this should be in each of our lives. That our love is genuine, that we hate evil, we cling to what's good, and now we add two more vital signs today. Vital sign number four and number five. Number four is brotherly affection for one another. Love one another with brotherly affection. And then vital sign number four is that we outdo one another in showing honor. So affection and honor, that's where we land today. Just two words and two parts of this verse But I want to jump in here a little bit. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, we're called to love people, but we don't have to like them? Have you ever heard that? We're called to love people, and we don't have to like them. Romans 12.10 just blew that out of the water. It is not sufficient enough, friends, to love people and not like them. We are called to love them with brotherly affection. Brotherly affection implies liking. So God is not just telling us what we should do. God is also telling us what we should feel. Well, he can't do that. Oh, yes, he can. He's God. He tells us all the time how we should feel about certain things, and he's sovereign, and he has the right to do that. So it's not just that we have to love people. We don't have to like them. Friends, not in the body of Christ. In the body of Christ, we love and we like because it is brotherly affection that we are called to live. There's some other verses that point to this. 1 Peter 1, 22. Here's what Peter writes. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly 
from a pure heart. He says that we should love earnestly. The idea behind earnestly, when Paul uses it, has the ideas of muscles being stretched to the limit. I think that involves feeling. What do you think? Earnestly is not something like, no, I'll do something for them. There's an earnest love that we care, that it's unrestrained. We're not holding it in. Paul writes in Philippians 1.8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says, you know what I feel for you, Church of Philippi? I feel the affection of Christ for you. I'm yearning for you. So we see this in Peter and we see this in Philippians, but then Paul writes and he says, you know, Church of Corinth, you got some problems. He says this in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 11 through 13. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. He said, Corinthians, you have a problem. Your affections are not wide open, be it either to each other or to ourselves. You, you've got a problem. You need to widen your heart. You need to be affectionate towards us. So I want us to pause just a moment and say, which is cross point? Are we more the first Peter and Philippians 1 where we earnestly love one another, that we yearn for one another? Or are we the 2 Corinthians 6 where affection is kind of withheld? We're not really loving with brotherly affection, partly because we don't even really like some of the folk. Or they've done something to hurt us. Or they gossiped about us. We're going to deal with these things in a moment. But we want to not let Romans 12, 10, we, we could just blow past this. But the point is, friends, not that we study and learn. The point is that we live. That Romans 12, 10 is what we're living. That it's true of us. And so we must meditate, and then we must allow the Spirit to sift us and say, is this true in my life? Do I affectionately love the other members of Crosspoint? Do I yearn for them with Christ's affection? Well, what is brotherly affection? I want to show you a picture. Hold your place here, and let's go back to the Old Testament. And let's go back to 1 Samuel, chapter 18. I just want to show you one, one real picture here of what brotherly affection is looks like how many of you ever heard of David David had a good friend does anyone remember David's friend's name Jonathan that's right 1 Samuel chapter 18 after David has killed Goliath by the power of the Lord one of the greatest stories I love that story I love that David runs to the battlefront. You have this guy that's nine foot tall, and David's not scared because he knows that God's bigger. And he's upset because this pagan is defiling his God. And David's confidence is not in David. David's confidence is not in his weapons. David's confidence is, this guy's defiling God. God's not going to take it, and God's going to use me to take him out. And David runs to the battle line. That we would be that type of person, caring when God is defiled. And trusting in God's provision. Well, after that, it says in verse 1 of chapter 18, As soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David, because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Would you say that Jonathan liked David? 
Yeah. Jonathan isn't doing this. Well, I love him, but I don't really like him. Jonathan loves David as he loves himself. And the incredible picture here is it's something that was produced from within. It was something that just flowed right out of Jonathan to where he gave his robe, he gave his, his uh, weapons. And there are, some, there are some people who deal with hermeneutics that will twist this passage and say that this is about homosexual love. Friend, this is not about homosexual love. You have to make some leaps hermeneutically to be able to get there. Uh, this is not about this. You know what I'm encouraged? These guys are both warriors, but they love. And it's an incredible thing that people would say, well, it's not macho of men love. You've got to get past that, men. It is very macho to love. These are two warriors, and you want to see what happens when they have to tell each other goodbye? Well, then you have to turn to chapter 20. Turn two pages to the right. Ultimately, Saul is not going to like David much because he knows David is going to replace him. And Saul is going to try multiple times to kill David. Of course, David has some cool stories where he sneaks in and cuts part of Saul's garment but doesn't cut Saul and just incredible things that we see. But uh, David knows that uh, Saul is wanting to harm him, and so he makes a plan with Jonathan. He's going to be away from the dinner table, and he says, look, here's how we'll know for sure. If your dad asks and he gets mad, then you'll know that he intends to cause me harm. If he doesn't, then it'll be good, and we can come back and you know, carry on. But, so David is gone the first day, and Saul doesn't say anything. But David is gone the second day, and he begins to say, where's David? And so David and Jonathan had conspired, and Jonathan said that David's going down to Bethlehem. I gave him permission. Saul gets angry, and he throws something at his own son because he's so angry to where Jonathan knows my dad wants to kill David. And so they've prescribed a sign that Jonathan's going to shoot three arrows in this field, and there's going to be a little boy that goes to collect them. And what he tells the boy, ultimately he's speaking to David, and he ultimately relays that message And then where we pick up in chapter 20, verse 41, it says this. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. There was weeping as they had to leave one another because they had care for one another and love for one another. And I just want to ask, friends, is that what you feel towards the people that are sitting on your left and right in these chairs? Is that what you feel towards the people that are over here in this section and that section and the ones that are serving? This is a picture of what brotherly affection looks like, and it's not restrained. It's not held back. It's not clean. It's it's just unrestrained love and care for one another. And what Paul picks up in the New Testament, and he says, look, if we're going to be the folks that are living the gospel, it's brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. And I want to move now to the New Testament and say, why does that matter? Why does it matter? And for that, you need to turn to 1 John with me because I want you to see the importance of this brotherly affection idea. One person has said that, Brotherly affection is the kind of love that allows for weaknesses and imperfection, communicates, deals with problems, affirms others, and has a strong commitment and loyalty to others. Imagine a love that allows for imperfections. I know I need that kind of love from Tara because my imperfections are ever before me. But I want you to see why this type of love is so important. Uh, in First Peter 1, the verse that I, I read, you hold your place in First John. We're going to be there. But I just want to read 
Remember I read 1 Peter 1.22. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So 1 Peter 1.22 says, love one another earnestly. We, we talked about that. But do you know what it says right after that? It says, comma, in verse 23 it says, since you've been born again. Since you've been born again. Why does loving one another with brotherly affection matter? Why is it not a small issue? The issue is what I put in your notes there. Loving with brotherly affection shows that we have been born of God. Look at 1 John 4, 7. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. The reason that brotherly love and affection matters is it's a demonstration that we've actually been born of God, that we're regenerate, that we have really been converted because God's love has been poured into us and now it's pouring through us. You see in 1 John 5, verse 1, look in the very next chapter, 1 John 5, verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. The reason this matters is if you're really born of God, then you're going to love everyone else who's born of God. This isn't super Christianity, friends. This is Christianity. This isn't optional. This is about obedience. And if we've been born of his love, then we're going to love him, and we're going to love those that are also born of him. 1 John 4.20, look back now as chapter 4 is closing. 1 John 4.20, John writes, and he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So friend, if you say that you love God, but you're hating and you're lacking in brotherly affection for those that are here, we must be careful that you're not a liar about your confession. Because if we really love him, then he's going to produce love for one another. And we're going to talk about it because there may be some of us who, who don't like other people, but we're seeing now... We're called to this. We're going, to, we're going to talk about how we get there, but let me give you one more. 1 John 3, 14. You know, uh, a great question is, how do I know I'm saved? You know, I, I worked at Dry Creek one summer, and uh, one of the counselors, when the students came back, you know, he asked the child, he said, you want to get saved? I was like, oh, man, why don't you just ask him why he came down? He may have needed water, you know? But, but this is our immediate fault. But one of the questions is, how can we know that God's love is really in us. How can we know that we are walking with the Lord? 1 John 3.14 answers that for you, friends. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. You want to know how you've passed from spiritual death into spiritual life? It's because you have a love for brothers and sisters that you didn't have before. You have a love that's not produced by you. It's produced in you and through you. And it's a love that flows out. He says, this would be good evidence for your regeneration. This would be good evidence that you walk with Christ. So that's why you can take Romans 12, 10, and you can say, love one another, brotherly love. Got it. No, friends, it's massively important. Because if it's not being produced in your life, there are major eternal things that are at stake. You may have never really been born of God. This isn't love with your own love. This is love with love that's produced in you. So reason number one why it's important it's because loving with brotherly affection shows that we've been born of God. Number two that I put there on your outline is loving with brotherly affection shows that we've been adopted by God. I won't have you turn there, but Galatians 4 talks about how we have been made sons of God. Now, you realize that God could have justified us without adopting us. 
And we studied justification in our Sunday school hour. God declares us righteous in Christ. You realize God did not have to take that further and actually make us sons and daughters. And so if you've never pondered much on the fact that God has made us sons and daughters and he's gone further and he's actually made Christ not just our Savior but our brother, you should ponder on this for a while, linger there and what it means to be adopted. But you should also then grasp when he changed our relationship with him, he also changed our relationship with one another forever. So now there's a reason why I tried to figure out why we called our pastor growing up Brother Palmer. Brother Palmer. Well, the reason is he's my brother. His name was Wallace B. Palmer. And I just thought B. Brother was his middle name. You know, that's where they got it. Because Wallace B. Palmer was on all our paraphernalia. And I was like, Wallace Brother Palmer. That's, that's it, right? But you realize now, friends, if if... We, we were to love one another with brotherly affection because it shows that we have been adopted by God, which means now you're my brother, you're my sister, and I have high regard for you. I want to do what's best for you. And I, I would say a word here, right here to our youth and to our college. In particular, I, I would say a word. That changes the way we date in the church as well. That changes how we treat one another. You know that there are some churches where guys just kind of work their way through all the girls in the youth group. Man, in case you've not figured it out, let me say a word for you. All of you girls who are here, who are in Christ, you're my little sister. So let me say a word to you boys. I care what you do with them. I care what you say to them. I care how you treat them. They're my sisters. And little sisters, let me say a word to you. These boys that are in Christ, they're my brothers. And I care very much what you say and what you do and how you dress in front of them. And to the college students, it doesn't change. You don't have to go to the same church to be brother and sister. If we're in Christ, friends, that's global brothers and sisters. And it matters. You see, that's why adoption, it changes. And families that are dysfunctional, they jack up their family. But families that are healthy, they work for the good of each other. They defend each other. They serve one another. They love with brotherly affection. And this is the huge picture of adoption when God changed our relationship with him and he went from just God and judge to daddy, it also changed my relationship with you forever. You're my sister and my brother. And so when we love in this way, it shows we've been adopted. One more, when we love in this way, it shows that we're Christ's disciples. A verse that I never tire of saying because it matters. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Tonight uh, is Halloween, and some of us disagree, but I think the best plan is not for the church to all be gathered in one place. I think the best thing for the church is to be out where people are actually going to knock on your door tonight. They're going to knock on your door. We have tracks, Halloween tracks for children that are right on this table over here. That some of you who have children in your neighborhood that you want to get some of these. We're throwing a party at our house, and we've got little packets prepared because we've got tracks and we've got candy. We're going to load them up. If we give them the gospel, we also want to give them diabetes. But we've got it. You know, we, we, we don't want to be those that are like, hey, we got you a track. Forget the Kit Kat. Right? This is more, this is sweeter. Right. We want to do both. All right. But you know what? We can hand out all the tracks we want tonight. But if they come here and we don't love each other, they'll know we're fakes. They'll know we're fakes. They'll know we're phonies. See, one of the reasons love matters is he says, that's how they'll know you're my disciples. You can put Crosspoint on a billboard on I-10, but the greatest publicity is us loving one another 
to the genuineness of our discipleship. And when we don't love with brotherly affection, then they're not going to know that we're Christ's disciples. And I would say this is why we continue to push you towards small groups and engaging, because to demonstrate this is, takes action and interaction with each other's lives, knowing people's names, doing things for one another. And that's tough if, if we just come in on Sunday and we leave. So we want to continue to push some of you, engage, join, so that we can see this demonstrated. Brotherly affection shows that God is our Father, that Christ is our King, and that we are truly family. Brotherly affection displays the gospel to a watching world. When we do not practice brotherly affection, then we lie about the gospel with our lives. That's why I hope we don't want to just blow past Romans 12.10. I don't want Crosspoint to lie about the gospel with our lives. We want to paint the reality of the gospel. We have been born of God. He's our daddy. And we are brothers and sisters. This is a picture of what the gospel does in our lives. Well, let's get to a very important question. What if I don't like some folk here? What if I've been hurt by folk? You know, and the reality is, it happens. Sometimes someone says a careless word or an on-purpose word. Sometimes there's some very ornery folk in the body. You know that, right? As we all have different parts to play, someone's got to be the belly button. You know, and it gets on our nerves. What do I do if someone has let me down? They've gotten on my nerves. They've gossiped about me. What do I do if I feel cold and distant towards some people at Crosspoint? Let me give you a couple things. I don't know if I put them in the notes. I can't remember, but here's the first one. Pray. Pray. If that's how you feel, you feel that rather than Romans 12.10, then the very first thing you've got to do is pray because only God can produce this in you. You must pray and say, Father, produce this. Beg him to produce it through his spirit and his word in your life. The very first thing is pray. And friends, if this is us and we're, we're not living this, we want to move to obedience, right? So we want to pray and ask God, produce this. Here's the second thing that we do. Meditate on the cross. Meditate on the cross. It's a cool thing. I'm thinking about using it more in my sermons. <laughs> Just kidding. Meditate on the cross. Here's why. Listen to what Ephesians 4.32 says. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, comma, as God in Christ forgave you. Could you imagine what Baptist business meetings would be like if they meditated on Ephesians 4.32 before they went into them? And if you're new to us, we don't have those kind of business meetings here. We don't have those here. It's not a place that we fuss and fight. Although, I guess we'll see after the service. But up to this point, we've not had that. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Look at what our brother Jesus has done for us. Look at what he's done. So you pray and then you meditate on the cross and then forgiveness flows a little easier when you realize you've been forgiven of much. You've been forgiven of much. Romans 12.1 in the passage where we are, how, how do we do this? Well, you meditate on by the mercies of God. That, that's how Romans 12 is to be lived out, by the mercies of God. And the cool thing is Lamentations 3 says that his mercies are new when? Every day. So the way that we live Romans 12.10 is by Romans 12.1, by his mercies, and his mercies are new every day. So then Romans 12.2, also we have this new mind that causes us to think different about people. 
causes us to be a little more tolerant, causes us to be a little more gracious and a little more forgiving. Number three, a third thing you can do is remember they are your brother and sister. Remember they are your brother and sister. And the reality is family's family. You can't change that, right? Family's family. We are family, we're family, we're family. Family lives for the good of each other and not to the detriment. And let me go back to where we were in Galatians 6. Remember Galatians 6, as we have opportunity, let us do good for everyone, especially the household of faith. And it begins, Galatians 6, with saying, here's some ways that you can do good. Restoring one another when you sin and bearing burdens together. You remember when we walked through those passages in Galatians? One of the greatest goods that we can do to one another is restore one another when we sin and carry burdens. But you know what? We're not prone to do that for people we don't like. When people we don't like fall, we're glad they fall. When people we don't like are having burdens, we want to see them carry the burdens. And that's not the gospel. And that's not the church. So if we're to be there, friends, you've got to remember this person over here who has a problem, that's your sister. That's your brother. Number four, thank God for fruit you see in them. Thank God for fruit you see in them. We tend to be the people who look only at the negative. But surely in some of us, there are signs of grace. What if we focused on the signs of grace rather than the things that have caused us anger? Focus and thank God for the fruit that you do see in them. Now, there is no fruit, and we need to deal, deal with that, but thank God for the fruit that you do see. And then let me give you one last one that I love. Meditate that in heaven, our relationships will be perfect. Whatever we're experiencing right now, it's only temporary. In heaven, you won't get on my nerves anymore. In heaven, I won't have to have emails about what you do or don't like, right? In heaven, we will all get along. So, friends, where is it that we're told to set our minds? On heaven, things above. If we would do that, it would change the way we interacted. Remember that these are temporary things. All right, so that's just part A. Uh, the gospel community loves one another and with brotherly affection. Let me move to the next vital sign, and this one will go much quicker. The gospel community outdoes one another in showing honor. You see in the rest of verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. The idea behind this command is literally give preference to or desire to honor more than be honored so that we should give preference. Now, the idea isn't you and I are just sitting around saying, you're the best. No, you're the best. You're the best. Stop it. You're the best. That's not what the idea is behind Romans 12.10. The idea is not also what I saw a few years ago. I saw one of our, our, a couple of our students when we were doing a, a lunch line. I saw a couple of our students run to the very front of the line, <laughs> passing up some of our senior adults on the way so they could be first in the line. I'm certain that's not what showing honor is either, right? There are countless pictures that we see those those aren't them so what is it what does it mean to honor to honor means to esteem to value to hold in high regard to esteem to value to hold in high regard another pastor has de defined it as this treating others with our deeds and our words as worthy of our service treating others with our deeds and our words as worthy of our service so we're going to honor them we're going to treat them as worthy of our service and can I put in a caveat here? They may not be worthy of it. But that's not on you. That's on them. We honor them, whether they're honorable or not. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility 
count others more significant than yourselves. Man, what a difference I would make if we meditated on that, right? Because we're the ones that are prone to, what about me? What about my right? What about my recognition? I did this at church. No one even told me thanks. Prefer to be honored. Prefer to give honor rather than be honored. Don't give energy to how you can be honored, but how you can't honor. What does honoring look like in the gospel community? There are several pictures that were told. I'm not going to make you turn, but I will tell you a couple of them. Widows. Widows. 1 Timothy 5, verse 3. It says that we are to honor widows. What does that mean? It means that we treat them with our deeds and words as worthy of service, to hold in high regard. And I want to say to all of our widows, yes, we honor you with a brunch, and it is a great experience, and the Morrisons are so well in, in hosting that. But what we want you to know more than that is if your family fails you, we will not. We will not. We will honor you. Any one of you at any point are welcome to come and stay with my family. That may take extra grace because of the kids, but you're welcome. You're welcome. And that's what we mean. We're commanded. This is how we treat. We honor the widows that are part of this. It says in 1 Timothy 5.17, after that, we honor elders. The elders, the leaders of our church. That means we treat them with deeds and words as worthy of our service. That we're going to hold them in high regard. There are two more that I want to talk about where rubber really meets the road. I learned early on Ephesians 6. So anyone remember what Ephesians 6? I think I said 6. Ephesians 6 says, it was a dialect, Children, obey your parents, what? In the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment that comes with a promise, right? And what we learned early on, Obey has to do with our action. Honor has to do with our attitude. Because you can clean your room and huff and puff the whole time, but honoring is the attitude in which you carry it out. So children that are in this room, whatever age you are, I want to say a word to you. God's expectation is that you honor your father and mother. I, you know, I used to, well, I still do, but uh, I traveled and preached, and I was at a church one Wednesday night, and I happened to be walking in. And this mother was dropping off her daughter there at the doorway. And the door opened, and the girl was screaming at her mother. And then she slammed the door and then walked in the service. And I just happened to be walking along at that time, you know. And then I watched that girl, and later on in the song, she would be raising her hand and some of these things. And here's what we, we don't quite grasp. What God is saying in Ephesians 6, children is that when you do not obey and you do not honor your parents, you do not obey and you do not honor God. And it's not a question of, this is for super kids. No, this is what kids who say they walk with Christ, this is what it's to be, that I'm going to honor my mom and dad with my deeds and my words as they're worthy. It's not because moms and dads are honorable. God has already declared that. By virtue of being your mom and your dad, they're worthy of being honored. And so... You know, there was nothing more difficult. I shared the stories at the beginning of this sermon. My dad was not a very honorable man. He stole concrete one time and was on a felony trial. I could tell you, look, we should go to lunch and tell you all the stories, you know. But that's on him. Honoring him is on me. And that's my responsibility by what God calls me to if I say I walk with Christ. So children, I don't know what your relationships are like. Students, teenagers, I don't know what your relationships are like with your mom or dad. But this morning, it's not about them being honorable so much as it's about you honoring them, treating them worthy of honor. 
And if that's difficult in your home, it was difficult in mine. But Christ is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. And you know what? I think that's what made the difference in me being able to lead my father to Christ. Let me give one more picture. 1 Peter 3, 7, it says, Husbands, honor your wives. Honor your wives. Treat them as the weaker vessel, not in the sense that they are, they are like olive oil. It's just their frame. It's not that they're less than you. Peter's going to go on to say they're co-heirs with you of the grace of God. Husbands, treat your wife with deeds and words as worthy of service. This is where I stand as a man imperfect. This is where as a man I stand in need of grace. This is where even this week needing that grace. But knowing what the truth of the text is and what we're called to, this is what we're going to be held accountable. Men, this isn't super husbands. These are gospel husbands. This is the word of the Lord. You don't have to obey it. You're not going to be disobeying me. You'll give an account to the Lord. We're to treat our wives with our words and deeds as honor, as honorable and in a way that they're worthy of our service. Husbands, be a gospel witness to your lost friends in the way you honor your wife. Students, be a gospel witness to your lost friends in the way you honor your parents. Church, be a gospel witness to this watching world in the way we take care of our widows and honor them. Romans 12.10 is very significant, friends. As our families go, so will this church. So if your home is made up of a man that's not honoring his wife and it's made up of children who aren't honoring your parents, then our church is not going to be a place that lives Romans 12 to. What happens in your family affects all of us, friends. So as our families go, our churches go, we need some men to step up and to lead. How do we do this? Same way I told you before. If this isn't happening in your life, you pray you meditate on the cross. You beg God to produce this in you. So today, church, we're being called to brotherly affection for one another and to outdo one another in showing honor. It's not about whether I get the pat on the back. It's about whether I'm patting others on the back. That changes a whole lot about how we relate to one another. If Crosspoint's a place where we live, Romans 12.10, then I can share this with you. People will want to join Crosspoint. People will want to give on it. If we do not live this verse, then people will not be attracted to us or Jesus. Or Jesus. If we fail to live this. So, the truth is there are a lot of dead churches. And I would say that some of the reason that churches end up dead is not just because they're dysfunctional, they're disobedient. People create their own definitions of what it means to be church. We're not allowed to do that. God planned it, Christ purchased it, the Spirit powers it. We can't make up our own definition of church. Here's the definition we've been provided. So now the question is, are we going to live it? I want to ask you a couple questions in an application of this. And I'm going to ask Pastor Byron that we would have a time to respond uh, this morning in encountering these truths. And then we're going to move into our other things. But let me ask you a couple questions. Are we loving members here with brotherly affection? Are we loving members here with brotherly affection? Are there some folk you don't like? If that's the case, then do we need to seek the Lord's forgiveness and empowering this morning? Do we need to not be in a rush to, to what's next? Do we need to pause right here and say, I, I need your forgiveness, Lord?
I'm not living Romans 12.10. It might be that we need to go to someone in this room and seek forgiveness. We're okay with that. Don't be worried about being embarrassed. Be worried about disobedience. That's what we need to worry about. Are we living Romans 12.10a? Are we living Romans 12.10b? Are we outdoing one another and showing honor? Do we need to repent this morning because we want to be honored more than we want to show honor? Students, are you honoring your father and mother so that your friends know it? Is it evident to your friends, to your neighbors, that you honor your father and mother? If not, you're not living in what Christ says, and friend, you need repentance, and you need his empowering. Husbands, do we need to repent this morning for not living in a way that honors our wives? We want to give you a time to respond to these things, and... You know, we, there's nothing holy about necessarily coming to the front. You can pray in the seats where you are. But before we move on, the reason we pause is not just because we want music and we want our hearts pulled out. It's because we've encountered the truth of God and we need a moment to pause on it. We need a moment to pause and meditate and say, are we living this? Is this true of us? doesn't matter what we plan to do with grace. If this isn't a healthy sending church, grace is going to be in even more trouble. So we want to pause and say, if this is not true, God, forgive me for where it's not true and produce this in me, produce this in our families, produce this in our church. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's in English. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that lights it up. We thank you that we are able to have it. As always, Father, we pray for languages that don't have scripture yet. Father, it's difficult to hear the word. It's difficult to read it if you don't have it. So we continue to beg that you would... Send out folks to translate scriptures into the language that are yet to hear. Father, we pray for those churches that do have scripture in their language, that they would heed your word. They would read your word. They would uphold your word. As we think about Reformation Day, scripture is our authority because these are the words of our king. So these are the commands that we're to follow. And so, Father, we pray for churches that will hold up your word, not worship your word, but understand that these are the words of the great king. Fathers, we've done that this morning. We've seen that we are to be loving one another with brotherly affection. We are to outdo one another in showing honor. This verse this morning is in particular how we relate to one another. And as we started, we saw that no one wants to be a part of a dysfunctional family. No one wants to join that. In the same way, no one will want to join a dysfunctional church. This is a place where we're not living Romans 12.10. No one's going to want to be a part of that. But more importantly... We're not going to be displaying the truth of the gospel. That you have caused us to be reborn. That you are our father and that we are brothers and sisters to one another. God, please produce Romans 12.10 in us. This morning, whatever we need to repent, whatever, desiring to be honored, dishonoring our parents, dishonoring our wives, not liking someone, holding on to a grudge of something that someone said about us or did to us. God, help us to lay all that down. Help us to pause here and meditate and use your spirit in our lives. Use your word as a mirror. Produce this in us. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.